0: Well, hi everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm in the Manchester Art and Design Centre. Is that what it's
1: called? I think it's a Craft and Design Centre. The right. Manchester
0: Craft and Design Centre, which some people think is outdoors, but
1: <laughs> I, I personally thank you. thank you very much. That's cool. Isn't it cool? It's a speaker.
0: It's a microphone.
1: Oh, it's really cool. But, I love this. But when you go
0: through security. In train stations and airports, and it's X-ray. People think it's
1: a bomb. Oh, which
0: that's, means not cruel. that's not cool. That's not cool at all. But <laughs> it's not. Cruel. It really is 100% a microphone. Thank you. And I'm here with my friend Sarah, and I'm going to get Sarah to pronounce her last name because it's one of these last names. And I should say, Sarah, we have listeners in 50 countries, so lot okay. of people are not native English speakers. Actually, the the listeners, as I've said sometimes before, three men and a dog in (laughs) Stockholm. But your last name is spelled A-Y-E-C-H. Can you tell us how you pronounce it and whether there are other ways of pronouncing it?
1: Um, it's pronounced ayish, and no, there are no other, other ways, ways, no other recognised ways of pronouncing it <laughs> that I would accept.
0: But when I'm, so when you were a child, in growing up in Britain, oh yes, and what would happen in the class role? Would you correct the teacher or?
1: Um, he, Sometimes, yes, I mean, and I still correct people now, yeah. and sometimes i don't bother because um Sarah is also quite commonly mispronounced as, as in Sarah this country up. as Sarah, yeah. and sometimes i i you know annoying annoy get annoyed and correct yeah. people and tell them off, and sometimes I just let it go because you get bored of yeah yeah doing that yeah
0: it's it's so similar to um, my one of my favorite words. Um, uh, Aisha you know, uh, yes. She who must be obeyed it's,
1: it's... I thought it meant princess Yes well <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should
0: say that <laughs> I wonder why we have gotten off on this tack um.
1: <laughs> But moving
0: right along I wanted to chat to you Because of the myriad Fascinating actions and activisms that you've been involved with, both in a sense the spectacular and more of the quotidian, the diurnal, the ordinary, and mm-hmm. I wondered if you could maybe start us off by telling us some of the things you're involved in now.
1: Sure, so um, my day job, um, I'm a mm-hmm. environmental campaigner for Greenpeace in the UK, um, and I work on climate change and oil. And I work on two campaigns. Um, one is about saving the Arctic and um, trying to get a global sanctuary around the North Pole and stopping um, primarily oil drilling and um, industrial fishing companies from exploiting the natural resources there and I um, the other campaign I work on is about trying to get um, stronger car efficiency standards in Europe um, which would bring down um, the emissions of cars like very drastically mm-hmm. um, I mean we'd use a lot less oil and um, hopefully have a global impact as well um, and then um, as well as working for Greenpeace, I'm also um, part of the transition movement, which is something that started in the UK and has spread all over the world. And basically, it's people at a very local level um, taking practical and positive action on climate change. So it's not—it doesn't describe itself as a campaigning movement. Mm. It's basically about people coming together in their communities and saying, "We." It feels really useless to like individually recycle a little bit of rubbish when we know governments are really not doing enough and corporations are behaving in a business of usual manner. Yes, they do. Yeah. And we don't know if we can persuade them quickly enough to do enough um, and at an international level in terms of the summits and treaties and so on, that hasn't been a success. And so what can we do in our communities all over the world Um, so it's a very local movement and a very global movement um, to actually change the way we live in a really positive and fun and inspiring way um, to have less dependence on fossil fuels and um, you know, live in a more sustainable way. So in some
0: ways does it owe a bit to the macrobiotic movement and ideas of eating what's produced locally, for example?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, It owes... I think it takes bits of... What's kind of good about it is it's taken bits of different things and drawn on different histories. So there's, um, like in this country, I guess, you know, there's community anarchism... You know, there's um, the cooperative movement, um, there's, I guess, movements of the sort of 70s where people went off and tried to live off the land. Mm. Um, so it takes kind of elements of those things, but we found that it appeals to people beyond people who are traditionally involved in any kind of activism. So I started a transition. Um, Group in my community, which is Dartmouth Park in North London, and um, it's it's been it's kind of had very mainstream appeal, mm-hmm. and it's seen as a very legitimate community group, um, and people and it has a really kind of diverse age range, so like people who have kids at my son's school, we've started a project there with the children to garden. Um, and grow food. We've started a project with the community centre to grow food there. Um, We're starting a kind of parents and kids cycling project. Um, We have started a kind of garden sharing project where people who have gardens but don't know how to grow food can team up with people who live in flats or apartments and don't have space and they can kind of come together and share the space. Um, The movement started in Totnes. Um, which is in Devon, in kind of southwest England, and um, which is a market town. It originated in market towns, uh-huh. but it's kind of spread into cities. You just take a smaller area of the city, and even there's transition Ibiza Islands, um, the Balearic Islands, kind of close to Spain. Um, and it's basically at, at the kind of level it goes to, it's basically people setting up. Um, social enterprise, kind of local businesses, um, building places in a permaculture way. It derives a lot from the permaculture movement.
0: And I guess also it has a some kind of lineage as well to an old British tradition of the market garden, but also the shared mm. allotment.
1: Absolutely. W-
0: which goes back decades, really, and has never gone away. But
1: no, I- there are still allotments, and um, but in London basically lots of people who are probably involved in transition have allotments and use allotments and have shared allotments and so on. In parts of inner London, there's like in Camden where I live um, there is a, something like a 10 year allotment waiting list and Good so th- yeah, yeah and so that's why we're doing garden share and trying to yep. use community spaces to garden because that's our alternative basically yeah, true. Um, but it's not, it's basically um I guess about designing your town or your bit of a city or your village in a permaculture way right, right. where you um, look at your local systems, you look at how to work with the earth and with nature and not harm it, and I guess design every aspect of your community like that. So your work, your economy, um, a number of transition towns have started their own currency, um, and your education system your where your food comes from so your it, transport everything it's
0: really transcending the essentially plutocratic notion of consumer activism
1: mm. absolutely it's not it's i mean i would say i mean it's challenging the model of constant economic growth yeah. because it's not it's not compatible really to have constant economic growth and live in a way that the people can support it's just impossible and so but we're looking at how you do that without taking things away from people because I think the environmental movement in the past has been very much about taking things away from people and a feeling of deprivation and denying feeling,
0: people pleasure
1: a, feel, yeah, a feeling of guilt a feeling of having to wear a hair shirt and do without things and this is not about that this is about um, how you actually make life better and, and qualitatively better and you have fun doing it um, and you learn for example that Picking apples locally and making your own apple juice, like you're, you're a living with your within your local food system, but your the apple juice that you make is a hundred times nicer and more delicious and more good for you and more fun to make than it is to go and buy some pasteurized apple juice that comes from a supermarket that's been transported hundreds of miles that uses um, pesticides and someone's spread apples and um, uses a lot of oil and energy um, for transportation. So it's
0: a non-industrialised model. In yeah. Sense.
1: And it's uh, it's interesting
0: that while Greenpeace obviously has grassroots connections, it's trying to get corporations and governments to change. Yeah. It's really, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. Whereas transition is trying to get you and me to do so.
1: I guess yeah. so. But I mean... Transition groups work with local government um, to try, because there are some changes that it's far easier for us to make ourselves if local government enables them. Um, So, for example, recycling, um, um, planning, like local planning and so on, Um, you need... Local government can be a huge enabling force mm. for this, and transition has talked to national government um, as I understand it. I think greenpeace 's role is somewhat different because it is a global organization, um, it has a lot of political reach it has a lot of, it has research capacity, um, it has a huge network of um, activists all across the world it has the, the history and the tool of taking direct action, the kind of iconography of the Rainbow Warrior ships and being the small ship that stands in the way of these huge whaling ships, these huge oil drilling rigs and is really about people standing up and saying no this isn't okay and I think that has, it has huge symbolism Mm. and iconography around it and as such, I think Greenpeace has a quite, quite is in quite a unique position in terms of what it can influence and what the kind of changes it can make, and those are generally changing the way that international big corporations do stuff, um, by attacking their brand, by exposing what they do, by stopping and blocking them, by doing research, Um, and it also has political reach. Um, So the things that Greenpeace has, the ability to change, are possibly occupy a different space from the things that transition has the ability to change.
0: But one of the things I know you do in transition is you're a social reporter, Yes. and until I met you, I'd not, I have to confess, come across this term. So maybe everybody else has, but it's new on me. So can you tell us a bit about what a social reporter is? Sure.
1: I hadn't heard of it until pretty soon before I became one. So... (laughs) Because Transition is a grassroots movement, it kind of... I think there was a decision to try not to follow the pattern of having a few people at the top who were the thinkers and writers and speakers Mm. for everybody else. And because it's such a... um, it's such a decentralised movement. Literally, anyone can start a transition town if they agree to kind of certain principles, and people do it quite differently everywhere, and they work within their own contexts. Um, and so, I mean, I went to visit Transition Ibiza Island, which is based on a holiday island, um, a party island, and they have a kind of permaculture community there, and they one of the things they do is beach cleaning parties because people trash the beaches leave loads of rubbish they want to recycle the rubbish but they have because it's a party island people go there to enjoy themselves they have to work within the context and the culture of that to be culturally culturally relevant and so they have parties and everyone cleans the beach and that's that's what works for them um, A bit like
0: Heal the Bay in Santa Monica, mm-hmm. where I lived in Los Angeles, where Heal the Bay holds parties yeah. to try to clean up the horrendous mess that's done there. Sure. Because not only does it pollute the beach, but it's it's killing marine life. So.
1: Yeah, and I guess in different areas there will be different contexts. Mm. So I think some... Um, a couple of people in, um, within the transition movement who have a background as journalists and writers mm. got together and started this social reporting project and the idea is that roughly um, ten of us from all different transition groups across the country um, each write, um, it's a blog and it's up on the Transition Network website daily, um, write the stories of our initiatives and our communities um, and how we're transitioning. And um, their theme, so one week we might, um, like this week was about reskilling, like learning the kind of skills of the past that we've lost, like um, sewing and making things and foraging um, and building things ourselves. Um, that was the theme of the week, so I wrote about um, my. Um, interest and the skills I've learned um, to forage for wild food. Somebody else wrote about a sewing cafe um, that they'd established in Lancaster, um, and somebody wrote about learning to um, make guitars out of wood. And so we tell, I guess we tell the stories of what's happening and it, and it's kind of the stories from the ground, it's the stories from the grassroots. Mm. And so we're, we're reporting on our lives and our interactions.
0: And how many of these have you done? Have you done
1: Me, personally, I only started doing it um, in June and I've maybe done about 15.
0: Wow. So June through to March, so you...
1: Doing. We're supposed to do a couple of months.
0: A couple of months. Yeah. 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 Wow. Interesting. And I know from talking to you that these get reposted too, don't they? Mm. Both transition.org is a site for them, but transition
1: network.
0: Transition network.org. Um, yeah.
1: And sometimes they get reposted to other sites of people with similar interests.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so there's a website called resilience.org, um, which is about again, kind of news and information and stories of um, the kind of
0: need to reduce
1: our fossil fuel energy use. Yeah. So, getting back to Greenpeace for a moment, you Mm -hmm.
0: mentioned a couple of environmental (coughs) campaigns you're involved with, namely the Arctic and cars in the European Union.
1: Yeah.
0: To the extent that it's Possible to share these things because these are ongoing strategic campaigns. What does a, a campaigner at Greenpeace do? What does it mean on a daily basis to think about and actualize counters to the environmental despoliation in these sites? Um, you know, in other words, you arrive at the Greenpeace building. Mm-hmm. And what happens? Do you
1: know what I mean? Sure. So it's actually a really varied role. Um, From at the start of a campaign, it will involve um, being part of developing a strategy for that campaign, Um, an analysis of how to actually get the change that you're seeking, what changes you can get, a kind of power analysis of all the, the players, the actors, in the situation, good and bad, um, an analysis of what and who you need to to create the change. So, which people you're trying to reach out to and speak to? Those could be that could be members of the public, politicians, other businesses, um, the business that you're trying to change. Um, and you'll also map moments that are important. Um, where there's opportunities for change or opportunities to highlight what's happening and getting people to act. Um, Then once those things are established and there's kind of a plan in place, um, a campaigner's role is, I guess, twofold. Um, In one sense, you're kind of the holder of the, the knowledge of that issue. And so when anything is kind of written about the campaign your your role is to check it factually and also to sometimes be a spokesperson for that campaign and then also on a day-to-day basis you're kind of a project manager so each campaign is made up of like in terms of the actualization of it a series of I guess events moments projects um and times when you want people to act um, times where you're developing the kind of um, the visual identity of the campaign Um, it's very much much nowadays quite similar to marketing as well you have to you have to not it's similar but you have to take on
0: the lessons from that
1: yeah and particularly if you're attacking big brands with big advertising budgets you have to like one of the most powerful things we can do is to um, attack or spoof or subvertise their brands and cause them brand damage. It's a power that we have without having very much money or resources. Um, so, yeah, a campaigner is kind of like, a, I guess, a project manager or an organiser.
0: And that also enables you guys not just to be scolds, wagging fingers at people, but fun. You know, yeah. one of the things that I've followed a lot is the uh, Greenpeace campaigns in the US about Apple which are hysterically funny, in the same way as the union movement in New York started with bringing around a giant inflatable rat and put it outside uh, companies that were doing down workers or insisting on hiring non-union labor, this huge mag- mm. rat, gigantic size. And it had to be the lead story in local TV news. Sure. And what else are you going to do? Gigantic brown rats 30 feet high. It's mm-hmm. being hauled around and inflated on the sidewalk outside some big firm, yes. you know? Sure. And so that sense of fun mm. backed up with science, because you guys, as you mentioned, are scientific researchers sure. working for you and with you, yeah. I think is really, really great way of influencing.
1: Definitely and it's one of the main tools that we use so I guess in a campaign you'll have a series of tools at your disposal one is um, you know, mobilising lots of people um, to act usually over the internet on email and on social media another tool is getting um, our local groups to do kind of Protests and awareness-raising activities. Another tool is our research and producing reports on an issue. Another tool is direct action. Um, Another tool might be um, creating a photo that will travel, that will talk about the issue in the in the media.
0: Yeah. So in terms of this issue, some feminist Freudians refer to the value of psychoanalysis as using the tools of the master to bring his house. Sure. Down. But I imagine there's some ambivalence and ambiguity in Greenpeace and among supporters at the use of corporate and governmental propaganda sales techniques via public relations.
1: Um I don't to be honest, I personally don't really have a great deal of discomfort at that. I think I'm really pragmatic about it. I, I mean, everybody um, in our society is really used to marketing and advertising. Um, things particularly in the UK only work and only get attention if they make people laugh and they're new and different and innovative um, when you're attacking a brand you, you have to look at what a brand is you know it's it's advertising its marketing it's the um, identity values that it creates it's how it makes people feel about themselves and you have to kind of look at that and in order to be effective. You have to look at that and analyze it and, um, and really have an impact on it. So a campaign that I worked on, um, which we just won, um, was to try and get um, one of the biggest car makers in the world, Volkswagen, to stop blocking and lobbying against um, and opposing really important car efficiency laws in Europe. Now Volkswagen spend more money on advertising, like a lot more money on advertising than any other car company in the world. It's like the most... um, for marketing and PR companies, it's like the biggest um, account that you can get. At the point where we started our campaign, they just released an advert, a Star Wars themed advert, which had premiered at the US Super Bowl, which is like the biggest advertising plus in the world, and had become the most shared advert on YouTube ever. Now if you're up against that, you have to fight fire with fire, you know, otherwise what are we we're just people poking saying no Volkswagen be nicer and we want stronger you know I mean it's it's pointless so um, like some of my colleagues had um, you know the really amazing idea of um, spoofing their advert um, and but doing it to a very high quality so they had featured a child dressed up as Darth Vader in their advert and Darth Vader is the bad guy, as we know. So we made an advert this with the same... This is the this same... podcast,
0: uh, immune to the George Lucas iconography. Oh, so do so Do it... you fill them in.
1: Yeah, no, that's fine, because I was quite <laughs> immune to it before this campaign. Um, it's not my favourite film. Um, so in the Star Wars... Story, because we use story a lot. And yeah. in both, to be honest, in both Transition and in Greenpeace, you use story because people engage with stories. So the story of, of Star Wars is you have a bad guy who's Darth. That was the child in this advert. In our story, w- the Rebellion, which is all the good characters, um, we, had, we cast child actors and they played the Rebellion. And it was really cute and it was really funny. And you have them having a battle with Darth. And winning the battle, and a kind of um, big, um, what's it called, the Death Star, which is kind of the spaceship in Star Wars, um, appears, and then the children win the battle, the Death Star flies a Greenpeace banner, Darth falls to his knees, um, and then all the children do this really cute dance. Um, And it's kind of in two parts, so it's like you see the bad part where you don't know what's going to happen we need you to act and then you act and then as a reward for acting you get to see the the second part where the children are happy and dancing um, and we followed it with a game a Jedi game an online game where basically to re- Jedi
0: are knights yeah they're, oh they're goodness, also Star Wars characters
1: Star Wars. sure so basically to, you had to invite your friends to take part in the campaign and send a message to Volkswagen to change and um The more people you invited who signed up, you got points and you got other icons with these points that are kind of Star Wars related. So you started off with a lightsaber and you could maybe get a Princess Leia or a Wookiee, all of which are characters in Star Wars. And it was massively popular because it it used gamification, which is popular on the internet. It uh, spoofed the... um, the Volkswagen's original advert, mm, mm. which people were very familiar with, in a cute and funny and high quality and clever way. Mm-hmm. Um, people love Star Wars iconography very much, so it kind of also yeah. drew on that. And um, you know, it was it was very successful. And because, George Lucas yeah. then
0: Disney didn't sue your
1: asses. Oh, he, um, it was three days after the. Um, our film appeared on YouTube, or two days after it was actually pulled off YouTube, YouTube pulled it. And um, we, I think it was because of Lucasfilms rather than Volkswagen, but I'm not sure, but whoever did it, it was kind of a mistake, because once you censor on social media, like, it comes back on you tenfold. Companies that do that are insane. Um, And they should learn in PR school not to do that because then what happened was all the people who'd originally downloaded it started replicating it all over the place on other servers other than YouTube and it became massive. And so, like, over half a million people signed up to that campaign. Um, And they wouldn't have done had we not used um, all of those, essentially, marketing tools.
0: And in terms of having half a million people signed up, what does that do to Volkswagen? or is that only part of
1: the campaign? That's just, that was part of the campaign. So it's an initial thing to say, look, lots of people are looking at you. Um, This is affecting how you're perceived. We targeted, in terms of media targeting, we targeted primarily PR and brand media. Um, we did a, we did kind of a, a launch stunt um, in an area of London called Old Street, which is where a lot of PR um, agencies are based.
0: And lots and, uh, of gaming companies too, interestingly
1: enough. Oh, right okay, and um, advertising agencies and so on. And we invited PR Week, which is the biggest um, um, publication, and it also got in Marketing Week. And, um, it w- because we analysed that in that area it's the highest concentration of people who use Twitter in the world <laughs> um, and they saw what we were doing on the way to work they saw us take over the billboards they saw um, and write VW Dark Side on them they saw us um They saw our stormtroopers down the street. It was basically like creating a film set on that street. And they all saw it on their way to work and tweeted about it and put it on, like, very popular blogs, um, kind of cultural commentary blogs. And it kind of... It trended three three separate times that day on Twitter, and it trended globally, which is pretty amazing Um, given you know the resources that we have as an organization compared to the resources that a company like Volkswagen has and we did a lot of things over basically a two-year period um, in terms of um, you know our supporters on the streets um disrupting their meetings disrupting car industry lobbying meetings and with stormtroopers and playing the Star Wars music outside and, uh, finally forcing them to allow us to go into the meeting and speak to them about what we wanted um, and they got, I guess they got to a point where it was in terms of how they're perceived and their reputation, because their reputation was, was a green company before that it became untenable for them It became politically difficult for them.
0: And what were you specifically wanting them to do? So
1: basically, um, currently, and these laws are not passed yet, um, there are new car efficiency laws going through the European Union, which, if passed in the way that we're hoping for, could bring car emissions down in Europe by half, um, by... 2025. And VW was opposing this and now is not opposing. Exactly. Like very strongly and publicly opposing it.
0: Now, in terms of what you just described, some of that, I guess, would fit under direct action. Yeah. I wonder if you could define direct action.
1: Um, So, okay, direct action quite literally is um, you're stopping or blocking something from happening. So most of that, in my view, wasn't really direct action. Um, Direct action is if somebody is drilling for oil and you go and get in the way of that and stop them from operating. It's if somebody is um, cutting down trees to build a road and you occupy the trees. It's, it's It's very literally stopping something from happening or blocking something from happening. There are other things that we do that look similar, which are more about either directly communicating with the company or a politician, that we're not going to go away. Um, And there are other things that we do that are um, what I would call a photo opportunity. Mm. So you're trying to do something that creates a great and interesting and exciting photo that will get in the media and travel and highlight your issue. So I would say with the things that I've described that we did, some of those things were aimed at media or particular kinds of media. And some of the things we did were a communication to the company, to other European, to other car companies particularly, because what happens when we target one company, other companies have a look, see what we're doing, and they don't want to be targeted in the same way. So sometimes they change. Um, And it benefits them as well to be perceived as as different. And um, sometimes um, in the case of disrupting a kind of European car lobbying meeting, um, people in the European Parliament saw it and talked about it and shared the video and so on. So it had an impact there.
0: In terms of direct action and other forms of activism, I mean, as I understand it, your life doing this to begin with Greenpeace. You've got no. some other experience. And some of it um, as a full-time paid employee, and a lot of it not. Yeah. And Maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of that and how that derived from your know, fully developed or emergent or protein politics
1: Um, so my I guess background is in really in the anti globalisation movement that emerged at the end of the 90s um, which in the UK um, manifested itself in the form of um, the reclaim the streets movement where people would originally who come from kind of a road protest movement in the early 90s where people would occupy trees and pieces of land to stop them being destroyed to build more roads and then had moved into cities to do the same thing and then had, I guess, it was a movement against not only car culture but also the privatisation of public space and it also in this country kind of merged with Um, there had been a very big kind of um, rave scene, um, again, in the late 80s and early 90s in this country, which had been outlawed by the government, where people would kind of rock up in the middle of the countryside and start having a big illegal party for a few days, and also warehouse parties and so on. And the criminalisation of um, that music scene developed a generation of um, people who had a critique of the police, who had a critique of the government, who had a critique of the commercialisation of public space and the fact that we can't do anything for free. We can't develop our own culture and we're living in a consumer culture. And so those things merged and I came along probably kind of at the tail end of that. Um, and But at a moment when, in kind of 99, there, this movement was also becoming global. So you'd had the kind of uprising of the Zapatistas, um, you had Indian farmers' movements, um, you had um, Brazilian landless movements, you had, in America, the Battle of Seattle, which was a kind of key global moment um, during the WTO, and there were a lot of... World trade organisations. Yeah. So there were a lot of these kind of World Trade Organization, G8. Um, group of eight, eight wealthiest sovereign states. And these organizations were meeting, World Bank were meeting and having summits where it was basically like they were making um, decisions for the world and had, in our view, no legitimacy to do so. And it was about basically saying we don't want to be, we don't want neoliberalism, we don't want to be consumers, um, we want a different kind of society. We want, and it was, in my view, kind of wrongly called anti-globalisation because it was an international, a very international movement. Yeah, and people work together across the world but we wanted a different kind of globalisation, we wanted a globalisation based on the commons, a globalisation based on free movement and free association of people Um, so there was also a movement called No Borders that grew out of it which was about um, the free movement of people, not just the free movement of capital Um, and I became involved in that and there was um, a a global kind of loose network organisation called People's Global Action which was all of these movements trying to come together and discuss and coordinate and organise and I became part of a a new group at the time that emerged in 1999-2000 which was kind of came out of Reclaim the Streets, um, and it was called the Wombles.
0: The Wombles. Yeah. the same name as the children's British yeah. television show. Absolutely.
1: So it was called it stood for it had a kind it was a kind of ridiculous anagram of white overall, white overalls movement building libertarian effective struggles. And again it was I guess in the same way... White
0: overalls yeah. movement, building... Libertarian, libertarian effective, effective struggle. struggles. So it's an acronym. Yeah.
1: Wombats, Wombats. So it was inspired by an Italian movement called Tutti Bianchi, um, which literally means all in white. And basically that was... It was kind of a tactic that was used by a group called y- Yabasta, which is enough. And Yabasta were... a uh, originated as a Zapatista solidarity group but with the Tutor Bianchi they started playing with um, myth, with the idea of having a voice and not having a voice with the idea of visibility and invisibility and who has a voice in our society and who doesn't and so that was the the story of it, and then literally, what they did on demonstrations was
0: you could say we couldn't
1: you? No, I'm talking about Tutti Bianchi oh, now, oh, not the Wombles, Wombles yeah. yet. Right. Um, right. So, what Tutti Bianchi did, which we saw and were inspired by on demonstrations, yeah. was so you generally on. Big kind of summit protests and big demonstrations like Genoa
0: would be one, yeah, for example.
1: like that sort of thing. Had a kind of pink block who were like party passive, pink block, pink block, who were like people who were pink and were kind of the party block and were very pacifist and and yep. violent. And you had a black block which originated many years ago in, in kind of German anti fascism, and it was people who would literally fight the police and and be. Aggressive as well as defensive, and then to like the white block was something where you would you, you would use padding and um, build shields oh, yeah. and be a defensive block, but not an aggressive block, and the white contrasted with the black that the police wore, and it was about like symbolically it was about voicelessness, um, and so we were inspired by that and we Develop the wombles, but we also, I guess, we wanted to play on the idea of creating myths and stories, and we also wanted it to, again to be funny because that's what works in the UK, and so we called ourselves out of these cartoon characters that, um, not cartoon characters, it was kind of like a puppet character show when I was a kid. Where, of yeah, and, and they even had like pop songs in the charts. And they were like these little fluffy creatures that were white and had silly na- had names, actually. Their names were places, I think their names were international names, like they were all from a different place in the world. And um, they lived in a, a burrow, like an underground room on a place called Wimbledon Common. And they used to keep the common clean and tidy by. Picking up all the rubbish and then making it into something useful. So as a, um, I guess, metaphor for like some of the things that we valued, it was kind of... Um quite useful and appropriate. And we basically just decided to use the same tactics as the T T P Yankee because we were in a situation on on protests and demonstrations where the police would like it's called kettling here, but the police would surround us.
0: Kettling? Yes. The shape of a kettle?
1: Kind of, yeah. And the police would will surround you and then make it smaller and smaller, and then basically start beating people up. Yeah.
0: And this is still this the, still happens. The norm in Britain. Yeah, isn't it? like fifteen years later, yeah. this is the standard tactic. Exactly. With any political
1: action. So we would we were challenging that with our bodies yeah. and by making padding out of sofa cushions, yeah. shields out of dustbin lids, um, and um, reinforced banners and so on and we wore cycle helmets and builder's hats and we wore inflatables like colourful inflatables strapped to us and it was basically like um, to be defensive but to do it in such a silly well we thought to do it (laughs) in such a kind of comical way that no one could possibly categorise it as violence And we had a policy of not... We didn't really talk to the media. We used... There was a a movement called Indie Media at the time, which was kind of really the first social media. Um, And actually lots of people who developed Indie Media um, in the US went on to be very successful in social media worlds.
0: Money, money, money. Exactly.
1: Exactly. but they developed those tools of um, kind of democratic information sharing and we kind of subscribed to that value and we, we very rarely talked to mainstream media and when we did, we kind of made things up that were really silly, um, which they took seriously and thought were true. Um, and the table is a little bit wet there. Um, and what happened was, unfortunately, we lost control of our story
0: you lost control of your story.
1: We lost control of the myth and were categorised like um, quite crazily as like a very large and violent movement. Like The first thing that we organised, it was a, a May Day, we were trying to re- reclaim the workers' day. It was in Oxford Circus. Um, in 2001, in London. And we made a game called Mayday Monopoly, where we made a map that looked like the Monopoly board, and we asked people, we asked people to organise like actions on each of the squares. So it was supposed to be autonomous, and you could, as a participant, either organise your action or go to any of the actions that were being organised um, on any of the squares of the Monopoly board, which are all places. The final action of the day was the one we were organising, which was at Oxford Circus. And basically, it happened in a space, in a media and political space, where there was due to be an election, but it had been postponed um, because of foot and mouth disease, which is a disease I think that sheep or cattle get in this country. It was just a kind of series of coincidences. So there was this. space in political media with nothing. And the media filled it up with us and with um, basically um, and it was kind of, I guess, also in a space for the police where it was kind of post-Northern Ireland terrorism, pre-9-11 where they needed to really justify their budgets. Um, so a
0: moral panic emerged. A moral panic, like the
1: greatest anarchist threat um since the kind of turn of the twentieth century, um,
0: and this was you dressed up in yeah. s- in a sofa yeah. beds. Yeah,
1: exactly. Batterous. With dustbin lid like, shields and
0: like. And there were
1: like thirty of us, and they said there were ten thousand of us. Um, something that my friend told a journalist as a joke, which was that we always marched with a giant inflatable Uncle Bulgaria, which was one of the characters of the original Womble series became fact Um, individuals were highlighted and characterised as um, you know, the most dangerous anarchist in Europe and so on Um, it was really crazy and But the serious side to it was that um, we had a huge, as a result of that, we then encountered a huge amount of police repression. Um, We were repeatedly infiltrated by undercover police. Um,
0: And I should say at this point just quickly that it's been disclosed in the last few months here in the UK that there was a systematic campaign of infiltration of leftist groups by the police over many, many years Mm. that involved, again systematically, not only... Adoption of false identities and beliefs, but also ongoing profound romantic sexual relationships with activists by these people who then simply disappeared, having broken the hearts of numerous people, particularly women. Yeah, and. Mostly men operating as, in a sense, sexual agents provocateurs on behalf of the Metropolitan Police. Yeah,
1: the first one was um, found out about a year and a half ago, and he was somebody that I knew and who was quite close to us, who i travelled with. Um, He had two long-term relationships with people I know, as well as sleeping with other women. Um, And then there have been subsequent disclosures of other people, and there are now five women suing the Metropolitan Police, because it seems as though there was a police unit that just went... I I mean... (sighs) On one hand, you can say there was a police unit that went out of control. On another hand, that sort of thing needs authorization from the Home Secretary, who's like um, in charge of homeland, Se- the equivalent of homeland security. The disgusting yeah. to home Yeah, and it's you know at that time they couldn't tap somebody's phone without that sort of um, high up authorization. And so I, th- I don't think it was like a police unit going rogue. I think it was like, sanction, officially sanctioned. Um, so there are all, uh, five women suing the police now. Um, then there's also, very recently, in the last month, um, it's been found out that they system these police officers systematically stole the identities of dead babies um, who had died at birth, who had the same birth dates, and took their names. Um, and one of these... Um, People again was in the Wombles from pretty close to the beginning. He was involved in hunt sabbing before that. He was involved in a group called Movement Against the Monarchy. He travelled to summits with us. Um,
0: yeah, so I mean. And, numerous and then disappear, again, disappear. parents of these deceased children mm. are in uproar yeah. at the court of the theft of the identity of their beloved children, whom they think about every day, mm. and suddenly realise have been taken in order to support illegal, immoral state activity. Yeah,
1: and when I think about in
0: a democracy.
1: The man that I thought I knew who did that, I mean, it's really, uh, he was, yeah, it's just unbelievably callous. And he was, like, a very jokey, light-hearted person who was always drinking and, you know, glorified violence, really. Not, yeah, um, would boast about his kinds of exploits on demonstrations. Um, Yeah, it's pretty insane. Um, And there was also, I guess, a police strategy of people in the Wombles had just, like, numerous arrests and numerous trials for for, like, nothing that mostly, like, pretty much in all cases were acquitted for. But it took our time.
0: It took our time and energy. It took our
1: time and energy. And when you've got, like, half the people in in your group with multiple charges against them who are constantly on trial and constantly in court, it just, and and, I mean, all of these were quite low charges, so they go to something that's here called a magistrate's court. And in magistrate's courts, the conviction rate is extremely high, but all of these people were acquitted, which means, to me, they were always ridiculous charges. But yeah, it takes your time and it takes your energy. Um, We then moved into um, doing something else for about five years, which um, were establishing social centers where you take over um, a a disused public building, not necessarily owned by a council, like very often privately owned, like a disused cafe or shop or bar or something like that. and clean it up, make it look really nice, make it into a coffee shop and cultural space and political space and social space. And We did that various times for about five years and that felt like, it felt like more of a, I guess, Positive and empowering thing to do under those circumstances, Um, but also it gave us the opportunity to interact with the communities that the social centres were based in, um, with young people who were kind of greatly influenced, and I guess establish um, non commercial spaces where you could socialise, culturally, and politically interact and not have to buy anything. And not have to buy anything, which is becoming quite unusual in our society. So, in a way, what
0: you're looking for there, as with transition, is taking things out of the market.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I guess that's a consistent thing, um, where you're trying to create where people in a community are the creators, the co-creators of that community, rather than corporations or government. Yeah.
0: Really.
1: So we've got
0: about five minutes left, Sarah, and I, I wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit about some other work you've done. You mentioned the idea of breaking down borders, and I know you've been involved in refugee work mm-hmm. here in the UK. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so I was involved in a in, um, starting a group in London called No Borders, which is part of a movement across the world called No Borders where it's about like an essence, it's about the fact that um, capital and products and services move freely across the world um, but people can't and particularly people who are poor or who are from poor countries and there is a need in a lot of cases for people to be able to move because they're escaping war and persecution and there's also a desire a legitimate desire (laughs) by a lot of people to move and I mean in in the UK for example if you have a British passport and you have money you can pretty much go anywhere in the world but if you're from a poor country you can't and so it was about challenging that and um, the work that I was primarily involved in was about challenging the use of detention and detention centers um, to punish and contain people who had committed this crime of moving without permission. Um, And also, um, in in many, many, many of those cases, they're people that have fled just unimaginably terrifying situations and have had to move, but have not been recognized as refugees, yeah. um, and so when I was in No Borders we did a lot of kinds of protest and solidarity work with people in detention, we went to visit them, we tried to help them get bail, um, we did... Um, protests outside Um, we did um, solidarity work with people inside who were protesting and got them media access um, basically and then I later went on to work for a refugee charity on a campaign about destitution of people who have been refused asylum or refused refugee status but they're not they're from countries that are too dangerous to go back to but they don't get any state support and um, so they kind of live a kind of underlife they they're people there are many people who've fallen through the cracks and are destitute and can't work but can't go home and a sort of reduced to living half a life because of this.
0: And that was Refugee Action,
1: is that the um, Yeah, Refugee Action and a number of other organisations um, had a campaign about destitution. The previous work I was talking about in terms of protests and visiting people in detention, right, no that was no borders, no borders. Yeah. yeah. So it was two completely different approaches because Refugee Action is quite a mainstream charity that does mostly service provision for like advice and support for people who um, are seeking... To attain refugee status, but what they were finding was that there was an increasing number of people falling into this category where they didn't get refugee status and couldn't mm. leave and then became destitute.
0: So, my, my last question, Sarah, is about the composition of some of these groups. There's a stereotype that mm. circulates, <clears throat> certainly in the US, I don't know so much here, but this is middle class white educated kids prior to going on and settling down and making lots of money in Mm -hmm. social media get active get interested and I'm not representative of Joe Schmo Mm -hmm. and Joanne Margolis but um engaging in a politics of spectacle.
1: Yeah. So, I, I'm,
0: I, don't, I don't know if that stereotype's true here, but it's a, a steri- it's a true stereotype may not be a truth there. I wonder if you can talk a bit about the kind of social composition of some of these groups that I've been involved in. And I, if I, you don't mind my saying so, you come from a very mixed background yourself in migrant terms, right? Yeah. Uh, you're not a, a British wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. No, or anything I'm not. Close.
1: But I do come from, I guess, quite a middle-class background background, Um, basically it is a stereotype here and it's something perpetuated by media and in some I guess, social and environmental movements in this country, like, a lot of the people are white and middle-class and young. Um, Most of the people that I know who've been involved in, everything I've been involved in across the board, have stayed involved to some extent or stayed sympathetic to some extent and gone on when they get jobs. And And many people had jobs and were activists as well. Like, many, many people tend to work in... Things like either NGOs or the third sector or in things that are in some way helpful like teaching or social work or housing advice or um, things that are kind of socially beneficial. Mm. So it's basically people with a conscience. And yet, I mean, not... I I would take the NGOs that I've worked for like Greenpeace... And say something different about them, which is that their activists are age-wise all across the spectrum mm. to people in their fift- even in their 50s and 60s. I didn't know people were still alive at such
0: <laughs> advanced ages.
1: Um,
0: Astonishing, really. what you learn in this country. Benefits um, the national health service, clearly.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Wombles and. borders and and kind of environmental movements I've been involved in are generally people in their kind of late 20s who were involved in them before having children but generally like the Wombles, I guess maybe quite unusually had a, a, a very mixed class composition it wasn't all middle class and it was you know there were many people from very working class backgrounds Um, and I would say with transition it's different in different areas but something that is I think maybe unusual about it for a grassroots social movement is the age range basically in that it appeals to older people as well. People living in the area for forty years. Exactly, like people in my group, there are people who've been living in the area for like 30 years whose kids have gone to school there, who've been involved in other community things like um, the community centre and the library and the school parents' association and so on. So um, there's a woman in our um, group who was a headmistress in the area who, you know, there's a woman in a group who has lived in the same street for 30 years. You know, it's it's people who care about their communities, basically. Well, Sarah, thank
0: you very much. I've I've really enjoyed this, and I'd like to extract a promise from you, if I may, which is that at the, we hope, successful conclusion of the Arctic and car campaigns, Mm -hmm. you will re-enter the pod, storm in, and share with us some of your insights from those experiences.
1: I will do. Thank you.